Due to the graphic nature of rituals of the Ordo Templi Orientis, listener discretion is advised. This episode involves brief discussions of sexuality and sexual activities. We advise caution for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. If we were to tell you about a person who can accurately discern when others are lying to them, without any form of technology, you might think that person was magic. But in 2014, scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, conducted a study. They found evidence that suggests the unconscious mind, your mind, is able to detect deception. If you close your eyes and shut out the world, let your instinct rise above your sense of doubt, you will be better equipped to sense fraud. Experts believe that we started lying as an evolutionary tool in order to maximize survival and reproductive success. But for as long as human society has existed, we've been both calculating and guttural, self-aware and animal. And our sense of instinct evolved alongside our deceit as a defense mechanism against that duplicity. We have no idea how it works. We also can't say how a newly hatched sea turtle knows to make its way to the ocean or how a baby bird knows how to fly. Maybe we can hear deception in the timbre of a voice or the frequency of a sound wave. But the fact that it's an instinct, something already within us, means that you could theoretically hone your unconscious in order to turn yourself into a human polygraph machine. So while we're conditioned to understand science and magic as opposing forces, like hot and cold, black and white, real and fake, maybe it's not so simple. Maybe magic is just the name for science you don't understand yet. Maybe the boundaries of possibility can only be reached when you truly open up your mind. And maybe an occult secret society of magicians, known as the OTO, actually does hold the secrets of our universe, just as they claim. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO an occult religious organization founded in Germany in the late 19th century. Today, the OTO is host to more than 3,000 members in over 30 countries worldwide. But since its association with controversial British occultist Aleister Crowley in 1912, the group has been scrutinized for what might be happening behind closed doors. This week, we'll examine what we know of the society's founding, their secret initiation rituals, and their philosophy. Then we'll jump ahead in time to try and uncover how the OTO operates today. We'll compare their internet persona to some of their ugliest rumored activities, like how they might worship Satan and practice black magic. Next week, we'll explore the many lives, both metaphorically and literally, of the OTO's most notorious figurehead, Aleister Crowley. 
and will try to determine the truth behind the legend. Was he a genius or the devil incarnate? One thing that the Ordo Templi Orientis is not is clear-cut. They are at once public and private, religion and philosophy, pop culture and counterculture. Take, for instance, the cover art for the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. It includes a collage of influential figures from history, Lenny Bruce, Edgar Allan Poe, Marlon Brando. And on the top left, sitting between actress Mae West and Indian guru Siri Yukteswargiri, is OTO leader Aleister Crowley. He was incredibly divisive and controversial. It's been said that he once tried to convince one of his lovers to have sex with a goat. At the time, he may have been tripping on acid and participating in an orgy with other women, men, or both, all of which would have been in character. But Crowley was also a spiritual philosopher who developed a school of thought that went on to inspire much more than just the Beatles. It's influenced thousands of people, among them David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, and Ozzy Osbourne. And yet Crowley's ideas, the same ones that now act as the core tenets of the OTO, were allegedly dictated to him by a preternatural being named Awas. But before going any further, we should mention the OTO wasn't always wrapped up in the man who called himself Beast 666. So let's travel back in time to their founding, to Germany, at the turn of the 20th century. Karl Kellner was a German chemist, engineer, and inventor, a scientist with an affinity for magic. In 1847, at 24 years old, he became an initiated member of the Fraternal Secret Society, the Freemasons. But his regard for the mystic arts took him much farther than the Masonic lodges. It drew him across Europe to the United States and the Middle East. What he was searching for isn't really clear. It may have been purpose. It may have been power. It may have been a need to rediscover the childlike wonder that magic can inspire. Whatever the reason, his quest for supernatural answers led him to the writings of American spiritualist Dr. Pascal Beverly Randolph and French occultist Eliphas Lévy. It also led him to a diverse collection of occult societies, like the mystical Rosicrucians, the Christian Knights Templar, and the metaphysical Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Near the end of his travels, Kellner encountered a society known as the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Whether or not he was ever initiated is unclear, but in his time with the Brotherhood, he supposedly studied the teachings of Tantrism, as well as a highly unorthodox strain of Sufism, both of which were pretty X-rated for the times. Think mind-altering orgasms as a way of accessing the divine. By 1890, Kellner's mind was an enormous grab bag of spiritual thought, and out of the sea of ideologies sprung his ambition to found an entirely new society. It would be primarily rooted in the structures and systems of Freemasonry. Students would gradually advance in degrees as they were schooled in the symbols and secrets of their ancestors. Like the Masons, it would be equal parts fraternity, ceremony, and philosophy. 
But sprinkled on top of that would be all of Kellner's magical wisdom. Throw everything in a bowl and stir, and Kellner got the Ordo Templi Orientis. It was an amalgam of everything that came before it, an ultimate secret society, if you will. Now, Kellner didn't create the OTO in a vacuum. He had help. He was assisted by his friend, former professional singer and socialist journalist, Theodore Royce. Side note, around the same time that Royce helped start the OTO, he was also trying to revive the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. That apparently failed, so he kept up his work with Kellner, which doesn't necessarily mean that the OTO was a plan B, but it sure seems like it. By the turn of the 20th century, Royce was all in on the Ordo Templi Orientis. He described the occult group as a modern school of magic and said, It contained, without exception, all the secrets of Freemasonry and all systems of religion, which is no small claim. Royce believed that the OTO gave immense power to whomever learned its secrets, and those powers could be used for good or evil, which is why, he explained, the knowledge was never given to those who intended to use it for the, quote, profane. Essentially, according to Royce, the OTO had to be discerning about which members it took in. In the wrong hands, their secrets could be potentially deadly. But the thing is, we don't really know what the secrets of the OTO were, at least at the time. That could be in part because their teachings were recorded in symbol, parable, and allegory. They required a key to interpret, which is what all initiates were offered if they proved themselves and made it far enough through the order. We can draw assumptions from some of the people and groups that influenced them, but we don't have time to go down a rabbit hole that deep. That said, reports of the OTO's most secret rituals started spreading quickly after they were formed. Some rumors are just too juicy to not let slip. Granted, it was nothing specific, but word on the street was that the OTO practiced sex magic. Broadly speaking, sex magic refers to anything that incorporates ritualized sex into religious, magical, or spiritual pursuits. Kellner could have encountered various forms of it in the Knights Templar, the Hermetic Brotherhood, and most certainly in Tantrism and the writings of Dr. Randolph. At first glance, sex magic may feel like a foreign concept, even extreme. But that's at least in part due to the taboos that humans often attribute to both sex and magic. And those negative associations are only compounded when the two are combined. But so-called sex magic is more common than you might think. In Christianity, for example, consummation is traditionally required to cement the rite of marriage. In Catholicism in particular, if a couple holds a wedding without engaging in intercourse afterwards, it's considered grounds for an annulment. But the OTO weren't just a bunch of sex-starved magicians, at least probably not under Kellner's leadership. At the time, the OTO had nine degrees. The first six were taken from the Freemasons. The final three were the only ones to incorporate the sex magic. This relegation to the topmost tiers was apparently because sex magic was powerful. Only the most devoted initiates reached those final climactic ceremonies, meaning nobody was talking afterward. It could have been kinky, it could have been tame. They could have been sacrificing virgins. We don't really know. 
What we do know is the OTO's incorporation of sex incentivizes them to make a rather progressive choice. From its founding in the 1890s, they allowed both men and women to join their ranks. Prior to that, nearly every other secret society in history has been exclusively a fraternal organization. Of course, this raises some questions around how pure the motivations behind including women were. There's nothing to prove that OTO wasn't just an elaborate hoax to get women to sleep with the founders. But for the moment, we'll give Kellner and Royce the benefit of the doubt. Under their leadership, at the dawn of a new century, the OTO spread across Europe to France, Denmark, Austria, Switzerland, and Britain. But then, in April 1904, the future of the OTO was rewritten. Over the course of three days, in Cairo, Egypt, spiritualist Aleister Crowley scribed the most important book of his life. Though it was Crowley's hand that controlled the pen, he was by no means the author. He was merely an interpreter, dictating the words of a far more powerful being. It supposedly called itself AWOS. According to its writings, AWOS was a messenger, one of the mysterious forces that ruled the earth from on high. The text was titled The Book of Law. It's a short three-chapter book written in cryptic poetic prose. It includes references to Egyptian gods, astrology, space, and the Bible. And it all ends with these words. The study of this book is forbidden. It is wise to destroy this copy after the first reading. Whosoever disregards this does so at his own risk and peril. Those who discuss the contents of this book are to be shunned by all as centers of pestilence. There is no law beyond. Do what thou wilt. In other words, embrace anarchy or suffer the consequences. Coming up, an attempt to decode the book of the law. Now back to our story. The Ordo Templi Orientis was formed in Germany sometime in the 1890s. They were influenced by many occult thinkers and societies before them, but they were reborn anew after the induction of one member, Aleister Crowley. But before ever joining the OTO, Aleister Crowley had started his own religion. In 1904, Crowley was allegedly divinely or telepathically contacted by something that called itself AWOS. It delivered unto him the Book of the Law. Unfortunately, the book mentions very little about AWOS itself. It only describes the being as a messenger from the forces ruling this earth at present. And present could imply it no longer exists. But if you were to sit down and try and interpret the entirety of the Book of Law, you might find it difficult. Perhaps that's because, like the original teachings of the OTO, you'd need instruction to interpret its symbols, parables, and allegories. To give you a sense of what we're talking about, here's the 19th line of the second chapter. Is a god to live in a dog? No, but the highest are of us. They shall rejoice, our chosen, who sorroweth is not of us. The book is full of similar ideological gibberish, sentences that feel like code, phrases that have little to no meaning, lines of thought that just unexpectedly end. But given that the book was allegedly dictated by a supernatural being, that might make sense. 
Luckily for us, Alistair Crowley wrote an introduction that's a bit more straightforward. He even admits to the obtuse nature of Awas's text. He says, The third chapter of the book is difficult to understand and may be very repugnant to many people born before the date of the book, April 1904. What did age or birth have to do with anything? Who knows? But the foreword is also full of philosophical musings, like, Every man and woman is a star, that is, an aggregate of such experiences, constantly changing with each fresh event, which affects him or her either consciously or subconsciously. They feel like a familiar and refreshing respite from the abstraction of the rest of the text. They're also in line with the one point Awas's text makes explicitly clear. It's come to be known as the Law of Thelema, and it can be boiled down into one sentence. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In Greek, Thelema, or will, is roughly translated to the human inclination towards that which brings joy. Whereas in English, the word will can simply be defined as the power over one's action. For example, in English, you could say, you have the will to succeed. Whereas the concept of thelema is more accurately represented in the sentence, your will is to paint. Philosophically, do what thou wilt is more in line with finding one's purpose, or in a larger sense, discovering your true place within the universe, with a focus on finding joy and pleasure. After 1904, Crowley's Law of Thelema inspired a Thelemic religion, with Crowley at its radical, spiritual head. Those who were attracted to his teachings called themselves Thelemites. So by the time Aleister Crowley found Royce and Kellner's magical society, he was already well-versed in all things occult. His insatiable hunger for magical studies surpassed even Kellner's. And truth be told, when he first joined around 1912, he wasn't actually that invested in the OTO. Not specifically. The OTO was just one more teacher, one more notch in his mystical belt. But by the time Crowley joined, Kellner was dead. Theodore Royce was the global head of the society. Though Royce and Crowley had their share of disagreements, they respected one another. Crowley admired many of the magical teachings of the OTO, while Royce commended Crowley's occult writings. But a single conversation with Royce changed everything for Crowley. One day, Royce implied just what kind of magic was happening in the highest levels of the Ordo Templi Orientis. It was a revelation, a merging of Crowley's two favorite things, sex and magic. Crowley had a notorious sexual appetite and had always rebelled against societal structures that restricted carnal impulse. As we mentioned, he was prone to taking a number of lovers, often on the same night. He also frequented the beds of sex workers, both male and female. He even called his primary partner his Scarlet Woman. So, once he found out that the OTO combined sex with magic, he was sold, hook, line, and sinker. And he dove in head first. After only a year or so of membership, Crowley was named the head of the chapter in Great Britain and Ireland. He then promptly renamed the chapter the Mysteria Mystica Maxima, or the MMM. 
As head of the MMM, Crowley declared himself the supreme and holy king of Ireland, Yona, and all the Britons within the sanctuary of the Gnosis, which was an arbitrary title that meant that he was in charge. From his position of power, Crowley began making changes to the OTO, which he considered improvements. He added new degrees, rewrote rituals. He even altered the traditional spelling of magic by adding a K to the end, possibly to distinguish between the childish illusions of the stage and the true power that the OTO promised its members. But the most important change made to the MMM was the incorporation of Crowley's The Book of Law into their teachings. Do what thou wilt suddenly entered the OTO lexicon. Around 1922, Theodore Royce had a stroke, and Crowley soon inherited his role as the outer head of the order, the OHO, the new global figurehead. Some accounts say that Royce simply named Crowley as his successor. He was impressed with the contributions he made and, nearing the end of his life, rewarded him for his dedication to their cause. Others say that Crowley used Royce's deteriorating health as a form of leverage. He spread rumors of Royce's incompetency and inability to lead before forcing his way into power. And then, after Royce passed away in October 1923 without naming a successor, Crowley lied. He told everyone that Royce had designated him as next in line. In both versions, Crowley's takeover was controversial, particularly amongst the German chapters. He represented something new and radical. Not everyone was so taken with his cult of personality. But after a heated meeting of the OTO's grandmasters, Crowley's reign became official. The dust settled, and before long, the law of Thelema became the law of the OTO. For better or worse, Crowley's mind infiltrated every corner of their society. Under Crowley, the group developed a reputation. No longer were they occultists or a Masonic offshoot or even sex magicians. They were devil worshippers. And it wasn't just public perception that shifted. Inside the society, relations evolved. New members started joining just to be near Crowley. His work, both inside and outside the OTO, created a media buzz. This was likely due to the fact that he took his Thelemic teachings to the world, often in pieces of shocking theater. And he became this pseudo-celebrity, particularly in Britain. This fascinating character, a bad boy at the forefront of counterculture, an outspoken anti-Christian who sometimes used the pseudonym Caligula II. Crowley apparently admired the first Caligula, a Roman emperor who died around 41 CE and was known for his sexual perversion and ruthlessness. Allegedly, Caligula once tried to elect his favorite horse, Incitatus, as a consul to the Roman Senate. Another time, he fed audience members to wild animals during an event, just because he was feeling bored. Which is all to say that the OTO became synonymous with Aleister Crowley, a.k.a. Caligula II, a.k.a. Beast 666, a.k.a. Cain. He started to overshadow everything the society once had been. The one thing that didn't change, Crowley kept the secrets of the OTO safe. The real ones, not the rumors in the press. He never let them slip. But someone else did. 
1973, occultist Francis X. King published a book. In it, he used his connections to various anonymous members of the secret society to reveal some of its rituals, including its first, the Minerval Degree, allegedly penned by Crowley. So if you were thinking about joining their order, you now had a preview of what to expect. On the evening of your first initiation ritual, you aren't alone with your nerves. There are 11 others who join you, one initiate for each sign of the zodiac. But you will not enter the room called the Oasis together. No, you must go in alone, as a prisoner. Coming up, more of the ritual is revealed, as well as the OTO mission. Now back to the story. By 1925, Alistair Crowley had climbed the ranks of the OTO to become its global head. He rewrote the group's teachings, rituals, and tenets to incorporate elements from his divinely inspired The Book of the Law and his own will, both of which he claimed would help reveal the secrets of the universe. In 1973, occult writer Francis X. King pulled back the curtain on some of the group's most secret rituals, including your very first initiation. You know you have to enter the oasis alone. It's a circular room, dimly lit by candles. In the center stands an altar filled with water, an ark containing a sword, a platter of bread and salt, and a copy of the Book of the Law floats on its surface. You're told you have to face the direction of your ancestors, east. The leader of the ceremony sits on a throne before you, inside a tent. To his right is an empty seat. To his left, a palm tree. You don't have long to get your bearings before a guard grabs you, blindfolds you, and then binds your hands and feet together. He calls you a prisoner. The leader asks if your intentions are friendly. The guard speaks for you. He says that you desire peace and seek wisdom. The leader asks for you to then prove your aspirations with an oath, and you do. You repeat every word after him. I, being a helpless prisoner in your power, hereby declare that I am a native of Corinth, a freeman of the city of Athens, the ally of Mytilene, and I am traveling peaceable to Heliopolis, the city of the sun, in search of light and truth, or wisdom and of peace. Humbly, yet frankly, I demand your hospitality and participation in your mysteries, which I swear to study and to hold sacred and secret. And if I break this oath and betray the bread and salt, may the dogs devour my carcass. The leader places the bread and salt into his mouth and tells the guard to release you. And with three quick slices, the bindings on your feet, hands, and eyes are cut. The leader welcomes you into the camp and tells you to take a seat in the chair to his right. You oblige. He then greets you as an official member and bestows upon you the title of Minerval, human of earth and seeker of the hidden wisdom. He hands you a scroll and tells you to study it. It's a sacred scroll. He calls it the Charter of Universal Freedom. At this point, you're officially welcomed into the world of the OTO. You're taught passwords, signs, and hand grips you can use to let other members know that you are a true initiate, 
and then you are whisked away and the next recruit takes your place. You rest before the second half of the ceremony begins. After your repose, you and 11 other initiates return to the oasis and sit before the same leader. He asks if you've enjoyed the hospitality. As you answer, a belt, scabbard, and sword are placed about your waist. The leader now addresses you as a group. He says, Are you ready to fight by the side of your comrades at the behest of the Supreme and Holy King, the Grand Master, Baphomet? Together in unison, you and your fellow Minervals respond that you are ready to fight. The leader continues, Our Grand Master will have none but free men and women in the ranks of his army. His soldiers must be neither mercenaries nor pressed. I therefore ask you your object in enrolling yourself amongst us. One by one, you and the other initiates explain why you want to join the ranks of the OTO. When finished, he tells you that the battle ahead is against the forces of superstition, tyranny, and oppression. He asks you what your sustenance and comfort is. You know the answer. You say it. It's the Book of the Law. The leader then asks you to explain the nature of the law, and you do. You tell him, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. He then asks you and your fellow initiates if you're prepared to defend the principles of Thelema with your life. Once again, in unison, you all reply that you are. Then your great leader explains the paradox of the journey you're about to go on, the contradiction of OTO philosophy. He says, In order to obtain freedom to do your will, it is necessary to submit voluntarily to discipline and organization. They are designed solely to enable you to do your will. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. We unreservedly place power in your hands. If it be your will to enter this army as a spy to destroy your comrades, so be it. Yet remember that you have made solemn affirmation to us in these words, which you will again repeat after me. If I break this oath and betray the bread and salt, may I be mutilated and be no more woman or man. It's a long explanation. You can't fully wrap your mind around it, but you think it means that you're simultaneously free to do what you will and trapped within this organization. But before you can even draw a real conclusion, your new family offers you a feast. They place food and wine before you. You eat and drink and laugh. It feels good. But you've only just begun your journey to understanding the mystical powers of the universe. You are merely a Minervil. You have only taken the first step. There are many more degrees above you. To some, the ritual might feel overwhelming. It's difficult to parse whether it's meant to be sinister, playful, arcane, or a combination of all the above. And King's book can only take us so far towards understanding. Even at the time he wrote it, he acknowledged that there were variations in rituals from chapter to chapter, meaning the practices of the Grand Lodge in the United States likely differed drastically from those in, say, Australia. And nobody, except its members, can account for how the OTO has evolved since King's book was published. But King's interpretation is all we have to examine, and it's just as cryptic as the Book of the Law. Royce wasn't kidding when he said that the OTO's teachings required a key. 
It mentions Athens, Corinth, and Mytilene, all cities in Greece that still exist today. Then, in the same breath, it mentions Heliopolis, a city in ancient Egypt devoted to the sun god, Adam. Not long after, it alludes to the Baphomet, a deity the Knights Templar were accused of worshipping in the 12th century. Today, it's most often depicted as a beast with a goat head, goat legs, a human torso, and angel wings. It's become an important symbol of Satanism, a religious movement based on the idea that biblical Lucifer did mankind a favor by tearing them away from the Garden of Paradise. Then there's the bread and salt, which could reference popular Christian imagery. The sword, the candles, the ark, the bindings, the astrology, the truth, the wisdom, the peace. Trying to make sense of all of the disparate elements would be like playing a game of darts in the dark. And that's before we get to the rumors of what happens as you get deeper into the clutches of the OTO. Among them, orgies with your fellow initiates that are filled with blood, eating cake made with semen and menses, and making yourself climax in order to communicate with God. To further muddy the waters, the OTO has grown and evolved over time. It still exists today, but seems like a very different organization than the one of Crowley's era. The Ordo Templi Orientis files annual reports publicly due to its status as a 501c3 nonprofit. According to them, in 2018, the occult religious organization had 52 active local chapters in more than 30 states in the U.S. alone. Today, the United States Grand Lodge is the most populous in the world. And according to their website, their mission is to promote the doctrines and practices of the philosophical and religious system known as the Lima, with particular emphasis on cultivating the ideals of individual liberty, self-discipline, self-knowledge, and universal brotherhood. To do so, they perform sacramental and initiatory rites, offer guidance and instruction to their members, organize social events, and engage in educational and community service activities. They also pledge to manage and govern in accordance with the principles set forth in the writings of Aleister Crowley and other historical leaders of Ordo Templi Orientis. And you can attend one of their events. Apparently, active chapters hold public receptions for the general public to get acquainted with their beliefs. Don't expect them to answer all of your questions, though. They'll tell you about their philosophy, the principles upon which they were founded, but they won't reveal their deepest secrets anytime soon. The reported head of the OTO in Britain, John Bonner, recently told the Daily Mail that there's a reason for that. He said, you're not supposed to jump straight into it. It takes time and study, but the rituals are not for public consumption. You need to join us and go through the initiation process before you can begin to understand. We like to think of the OTO like this. You're standing in line to go on a roller coaster. You can see the car in front of you. You might be able to see the first few drops, but for the most part, the rest of the ride is a mystery. It's full of unexpected twists and turns. You can hope it will be everything that you want it to be, but there are no promises. There's no money-back guarantee. For all you know, the coaster takes you deep underground, into the bowels of hell, to a hidden world that you can't see while waiting in line. 
It might terrify you. It might thrill you. You might have the time of your life. You might exit the ride a changed person. Like you, we don't know the full journey that the OTO takes you on. We can only take clues from those who have written it before. And the reviews are wildly different. According to some, the OTO members participate in wild orgies filled with hallucinogenic drugs, blood, and ritual sacrifice. They worship the phallus and force initiates to perform anal sex acts. According to others, they're just a philosophical religion meant to help you become more your best self through ritual relationships and self-exploration. The truth is clouded in as much mystery as Aleister Crowley himself, the man who was born into wealth and yet spent his life raging against the systems of his day, the man who was openly bisexual at a time when sodomy was illegal in his home country, the man who talked to aliens, the man whose writings inspired the OTO and helped create Satanism as we know it today. He's been called a genius, and he's been called the wickedest man alive, and he's divided the world. Maybe the dark reputation of the OTO is rooted in a lack of understanding. We fear the things we've been taught are taboo. Or maybe you should be careful about stepping into their world of rituals. According to science, ritual is one of the most powerful tools humans have to form connections with others. The OTO could want you feeling connected so that you reach a point where you're in over your head, where you feel like you can't leave. So they have you in the palm of their hand to do their bidding. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode on the mysteries of the Ordo Templi Orientis. We'll dive deep into the life of their most influential leader, Aleister Crowley, and try to determine if their intentions really are as pure as they say. For more information on the OTO, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Secret Rituals of the OTO by Francis King very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all of the podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 